Good evening. So last night I mentioned that all of these different techniques from the Satipatthana Sutta that we've been exploring, they're all aimed at developing the seven factors of awakening. Mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration and equanimity. Because when these seven skillful mental qualities are all brought together and balanced, the deepest insights can arise. Then we start to see more clearly that all experience is impermanent, it's unsatisfactory, and it's not happening to a permanent fixed me who's in control of it all. So those are the three universal characteristics that I mentioned briefly last night. Anicca, impermanence, dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, anatta, or not-self. And of these three, for most people, anicca, impermanence is the easiest to see. On one level it's quite obvious. Especially when we come on retreat. If you think back over these last however many days it's been, how many different emotional experiences have you had? Highs and lows, ups and downs, and so on. And how many different thoughts and thought patterns have you got lost in and then become free of? And even physically the weather, how many different weather patterns have we experienced? So impermanence I talked about last night, so I won't say too much more about it now. But the second universal characteristic is dukkha, and it's linked to impermanence. Because everything is constantly changing, it's not going to give us lasting satisfaction. And this can be... this. Uh, Characteristic being translated as dukkha usually is translated as suffering. And so we hear everything is suffering and we go, well, seeing the more pork in the cowrie wasn't suffering. <laughs> Experiencing the warm sun on my shoulders isn't suffering. So it can it sound confusing, but if we think of it as unsatisfactoriness, that's pointing to the fact that because of change, it's not reliable. It's not stable. We can't depend on it. And even the pleasant experiences before, often before too long, will change. And then we'll end up having to look for the next hit of pleasant experience. Or we might even not be able to fully enjoy the pleasantness in the first place because part of us is braced against the coming loss of it. So in this sense... Even pleasant experiences are dukkha, unsatisfactory, unreliable. And then the last of these three, anatta, I spoke a little bit again last night, but I'd like to uh, dive into it in a bit more detail now, partly because when we hear this translation of not-self, not only does that sound pretty unappealing, uninspiring, it can sound incomprehensible or even meaningless. And we might try to tie ourselves in knots on wanting to understand it intellectually. 
But right there is actually part of the problem because it's not so easy to understand intellectually and the deepest insights into it really come out of a more embodied and intuitive wisdom. So it's an embodied experience rather than a concept to be wrestled with on the deeper levels. There's also confusion about the self in this term not-self. Because the way the Buddha used the word self and the way Western psychology used the word self are not necessarily the same. So when the Buddha used this word self, he was using it in the context of India at that time where there was a common belief, the spiritual traditions of his time, the Brahmins, were trying to connect to their higher self. So there was a belief that there was some fixed, eternal, essential, you could say kind of a soul at the center of our existence. But the Buddha is pointing to, because of the truth of impermanence, there is no fixed, permanent entity in here to whom all this is happening. All of our experience is this ever-changing flow that I've been pointing to. And we ascribe to that a a sense of a me to whom it's all happening. So the Western understanding of self is, is, it's desirable to have a healthy sense of self. And this is true in Buddhism too. It's not that we're trying to negate that and somehow become some kind of characterless, colorless non-entity although it might sound paradoxical or contradictory, the more we can understand this truth of anatta, it actually improves our healthy sense of self. So intellectually we might get some glimmers of the truth of that, but there can still be a sort of a felt sense, but yeah, this is me. And there is an aspect of that that's true. It's common sense. I'm me. I'm not any of you. We all have different life histories, different psychologies, personalities, conditioning, and so on. But the the practical application of what the Buddha's pointing to here is to look at how much we cling to or identify with that sense of self if we try to make it solid, fixed, permanent, real, in other words, if we cling to it, to that extent we suffer. So you might remember the second noble truth that the cause of dukkha is craving or clinging. And in relation to the sense of self, this craving refers to that very deep tendency to cling to or to identify with experience and take it to be me and mine. So the other day I used the analogy of the movie projector and how we tend to get completely lost in the dramas that are playing out on the screen and not realize that we've actually created them and that they are just a movie. And when we start to see the projector, the mechanism that's creating all that, We can't believe the story quite as fully as we used to. So the Satipatthana Sutta is giving us all these different techniques to see how this projection, this fabrication is happening. 
And that still perhaps might not sound too appealing. So sometimes I like to uh, explore what it's like to have a strong sense of self. Those times in our experience when we get really caught and really gripped and really cling to this sense of me, mine, who I am, usually it's suffering. And although uh, we were using the other day, we were exploring uh, the use of language and how it constantly constructs a sense of self by referring back to I. So we did that exercise of describing our experience out loud without using the words I or me, my or mine, and just feeling the difference that that made. We can also see in the English language how many words there are that start with the word self that are somewhat unpleasant. So a few years ago when I was um, doing some research, I, start, I was looking through one of those big dictionaries for a word and there were just paragraphs and paragraphs of words that started with self. And I started reading them and after reading you know, a dozen or so of them, I started to feel a little nauseous. Because <laughs> just to give you an, a few examples, these are the kind of words that were listed. And you might notice as you hear these words what effect it has. Your mindfulness is quite refined now, so just tune in. Self-absorbed. Self-aggrandizing. Self-approving. Self-centered. Self-complacent. Self-congratulatory. Self-conscious. Self-delusion. Self-important. Self-indulgent, self-opinionated, self-pitying, self-referencing, self-righteous, self-satisfied, self-serving. How do you feel? (laughs) A little sort of tight, contracted. I just notice a slight sort of tensing in my body and a... Uh, contraction in the heart area and an an overall subtle feeling of shrinking and uh, stiffening just from hearing the words let alone the the sense of the actual qualities themselves so I think we've probably all had experiences during this retreat when for whatever reason the sense of self suddenly got crystallized in a strong way and oh Uh, the sense of uh, it's unpleasant. Even if what we're identifying with is pleasant. You know, sometimes we start to uh, practice, get some momentum and a flow, and we experience easeful states, and then some voice goes, wow, now I'm onto it. (laughs) Can't wait to tell Jill about this. And we fall off, and there's that tightening again. And that's very different from when we're just sort of in the flow of knowing our experience moment to moment and there can be an ease, a lightness, an acceptance, a spaciousness, a kind of openness to new possibilities. And sometimes we might find the Brahma-Vihara qualities just very naturally emerging 
kindness and compassion, joy and equanimity arising quite spontaneously. So as the practice deepens, there is this natural shift from self-centered to other-centered or perhaps no-centered because we're not focusing on the other at the expense of ourselves. This is just another form of delusion. Instead, ultimately, the distinction between self and other starts to become less and less relevant. And there's no need to refer to a center at all. And and having said all that, it's not that we want to make the sense of self wrong or bad. So sometimes I hear people in Buddhist circles talk about, ooh, and then I caught myself selfing. As if there's a self who has to try to get rid of the self that's creating the sense of self and we can sort of be like a dog chasing our tail and get all tangled in knots. So it's not about trying to get rid of anything. It's more about knowing that the sense of self is itself just another empty arising. And it only has as much substance as we give to it. And although at first this understanding might seem counterintuitive, it is something we can train in. We can train ourselves to know and see the truth of it on deeper and deeper levels. And we've all already been involved with this throughout this retreat so far. So that even this, um, most of the exercise I've offered has been emphasizing the quality of bare awareness that simply knowing experience without adding story or judgment or analysis to it to be with our experience just as it is so again it's not the sense of self that's the problem it's the clinging to it that causes suffering and there's a core teaching in, in the, from the Buddha that is sometimes presented as summarizing the whole of his teachings. It says, nothing whatsoever is to be clung to. Ajahn Buddhadasa points to this as nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I, me, or mine. And the first time I heard that, I could just feel this sort of inner skittering, like, really? And not long after that, I saw a somebody shared a, a YouTube video of a, in the US, where I was living at the time, of a, a deer that had got walked out onto a frozen pond, and then it fell, and because it was on the ice, it couldn't get back up. And so the deer was skittering and skittering, like, that's how I feel, nothing whatsoever. What? Nothing? Nothing? And the more I tried to stand up, the more I just kept skittering. That YouTube video had a happy ending because somebody skated out and managed to bring the deer back to the edge and it trotted off. But coming back to this, nothing whatsoever is to be clung to, I would think, really? That's a bit extreme. What about X? X being whatever I was trying to cling to at the time. A relationship or my good health or being on retreat or whatever. But it says nothing. <laughs> okay. And then I realized that I was focusing on the nothing and missing the clung to piece. 
It's the clinging that's the issue, not the thing itself. For most of us, in the beginning, this process involves seeing where we do cling. So I don't know if you can cope with one more list. (laughs) This one. List of the five aggregates, the five aggregates of clinging, the five clinging aggregates. So for those of you who have been keeping track of all of these different lists, this one appears in the fourth foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of dhammas. And the term aggregate is the word that's usually translated by the Pali word kanda, and it means a pile, a bundle, a heap, a mass. And so these five clinging aggregates are basically aspects of our experience that we tend to identify with, to to take personally, to see as me and mine and who I am. So the first one is material form, anything Anything that has form, particularly our own bodies, tend to be a source of great clinging. As we've been exploring in the first foundation, mindfulness of the body, those three sets of contemplations that are really designed to help release this clinging and identification with the body. So the contemplation of the body is the 32 anatomical parts. Contemplation of the body in terms of the four Uh, elemental qualities, and then today, contemplating the body's own mortality. And still, it's not easy to take in the body's impermanence and vulnerability. And when we do get moments of that, when we get ill or injured or suddenly realize, yep, we're aging, there can be that sort of primal recoil. So I still have a small example of this from when I was quite young, about 14 or 15, living near a beach up north, and there had been a high tide that had washed away a lot of the sand. And so I went for my usual run along the beach and did not see that there was a rock sticking out, and I whacked my foot on it really hard. It was bleeding quite badly, so I limped down to the edge of the surf to wash it and as I washed my foot I saw my toenail just floating off out to sea (laughs) and there was this sort of visceral like it's my body my body and that was you know just a toenail but I can still remember that sense of kind of shock how could my body do that so on the one hand we have this Um, sense that the body is supposed to be whole and controllable but then we also break it into parts in an unhealthy way so I I hear people say things like I hate my flabby thighs or I hate my big nose or I hate my puny biceps as if uh, that's me I am my flabby thighs or my big nose or my weak arms And there's that sense that I should be able to control my body. So that if it does let us down by being ugly or sick or injured or old, 
let alone dying. Something is seriously wrong. And again, in terms of the body, to really let in, as we have been doing over these few days, seeing through the delusion and seeing the body as organic matter. I was really fortunate a few years ago to be able to go to an autopsy lab in the US and to look at uh, cadavers' bodies that have been dissected for medical training and being able to just be with a corpse and to look at its component parts was pretty powerful. And I was really impacted by the complexity of just the physical aspect of the body. So looking at organs such as the pancreas or the gallbladder or the salivary glands and the brain, there was this sense of how incredible that all these different lumps of meat and bone are able to function together to support a human life. And just the physical meat and bones of the body are complex enough. But then when the body's alive, we have a chemical system of hormones that are constantly being released to help us digest and sleep and wake up and regulate our moods. And we also have the electrical system within the body, the firing of the neurons and all the millions of different messages that are being sent to different parts of the body to keep the whole thing responding appropriately. It's pretty incredible. And staring at that corpse lying on the gurney, seeing its meat and bones resemblance to me, and yet, what is it? What is that that I at that point was alive and it wasn't? Quite mysterious. So the body is the first kind of locus or the first aggregate of where we tend to identify and cling and believe this is me, who I am. The second of these five aggregates you already are familiar with, it's uh, Vedana, feeling tone. The knowing of things as pleasant, unpleasant or neutral. We were practicing with that quite a lot the other day knowing just how we get caught in wanting, not wanting, not knowing in response to these basic feeling tones. And when we start to recognize these preferences, we see how quickly we pull away from what we don't like, go after what we do like, space out when we don't know what it is. But then we also take our preferences to be me and mine and who I am. We create a sense of identity out of them. So one of my American friends, we used to uh, go on outings together and travel together quite a lot. And she, whenever we stopped for coffee, she would always load her coffee up with fake vanilla non-dairy creamer, which to me was completely disgusting. So my preference was that coffee should be real, not fake. And hers was, it should taste like fake Tahitian vanilla. (laughs) And I could feel how every time she did it, I would form this kind of identity of like, I know better. (laughs) 
And maybe I did because one day our coffees got mixed up and she drank mine and she said, wow, that's great. What flavor is it? (laughs) And I said, coffee. And she said, but what flavor? I said, it's just coffee. So something as really simple and silly in a way as how we take our coffee can create this whole sense of identity. And that ties in a little bit, maybe it's um, technically falling more into the third of these five aggregates, which is perception or cognition, recognition, this ability of the mind to recognize, to label, to identify objects and experiences. And again, this is a natural function of the mind, that it just knows how to recognize something from the past to be able to name it. And this helps us to navigate the world, so it, it definitely has a useful place. You know, if we went in for breakfast every morning and had to work out what that bowl is for and what's in that pot and is it porridge or wallpaper glue and how do we get it into our... Are we supposed to get it into our bowl? Life would be very complicated. So perception is useful. Cognition is useful. But again, when we start to take it seriously and to identify with it, it becomes problematic. And the problem, a little bit of the problem with with these aggregates, you can see how they're moving from the most basic, simple aspects of our experience to start to include more and more of our uh, cognitive functioning to become a little bit further away from reality and more into the conceptual realm. And perception brings us into this conceptual realm. Because as soon as we put a name on something, the name is kind of like a symbol. It's not the thing itself. So when I say bell, it's bell, bell, bell. It's always just bell. Yeah, hit the bell. And I don't see, I quickly lose sight of its unique characteristics. So if it was a rose, or one of these flowers, camellia I think, I go, oh yeah, nice camellia. But I don't see, wow, its color, its form, its texture, perhaps it might have a slight fragrance. It's just, oh yeah, camellia, tick, know that, got it, done, move on. We do that with objects, we do it with things, we do it with people, especially people we know. It's habit, my partner. We stop being a living, dynamic human being. It's my partner who's always like that, who always does this and never does the other and shouldn't do that, (laughs) on and on and on. We do it to other people, we make them into things, concepts, and we do it to ourselves. And we take our self-perceptions to be fixed and real and true and who I am. So a few years ago I did this exercise. I started to notice how often my internal language started with I am often with quite a pretty heavy tone. And so I started to listen out for that I am phrase and to see if what followed was actually true or not. 
And it was pretty amazing how often it wasn't. You know, I'd hear myself saying, oh, I'm always late. I'd think, really? Well, right now I'm late. But yesterday I was a few minutes early. The day before I was right on time. And yet I'm telling myself I am always late. I'm putting that conceptual overlay over something. And that's a fairly benign example. But we often make these I am statements that are solid and fixed and pretty much always not fully true. So you might like to check that out in your own experience, to listen out for those I am statements and see are they fully true, partially true, or completely untrue sometimes. So with these examples, we're also starting to move into the fourth aggregate, clinging aggregate. This is Sankara, translated as volitional formations or fabrications, and it's pointing to the next level of mental um, complexity. It includes all the other mental processes other than perception that go into that take our raw sense data and fabricate all kinds of stories and beliefs and constructs, views about our experience, and create a self out of all of it. And again, some of that is useful in navigating the world, but again, it's how much we take these to be absolute truths and to keep referring them back to me and mine and who I am the extent that we cling to them is going to cause suffering. So we've probably, we can see this at times even if we look back at our life histories. Those of you who have siblings, have you ever had the experience of sharing family memories and having your siblings have a polar opposite mm-hmm. experience of supposedly the same incident? and wondering if they actually grew up in a completely different family from yours. (laughs) And we can see this playing out. A couple of months ago, I did a workshop in Sydney with a colleague. We were exploring Anatta, and he invited us all to sit with a partner and think about our lives and to think of three key incidents in our lives that really captured the essence of our life so that the other person could understand it. So we each told these three anecdotes from our lives and then he rang a bell and he said, now do it again but tell three different stories. So we had to think, oh, okay. Let go of the top three and come up with three more that really convey the essence. And then he rang a bell and we had to do it again. (laughs) And we did it many times and you can probably imagine from that process that after you've got through the first layer that you really thought was you and who you were, you start to see, I'm just making choices all the time. And that none of these stories that I tell myself are the only truth or the absolute truth or the fixed truth. So we can see sometimes how we cling to sankharas when we hold on to those stories and tell them to ourselves over and over again. I am my terrible childhood or 
my abusive relationship or my addictive personality and so on. And again, it's not that we just go, oh, that's all sankara. There is a relative truth here. And so as we start to unhook from these stories, we need to do this with kindness, with compassion. We need to work both wings, the wisdom wing and the compassion wing. And then the last of the five clinging aggregates is consciousness itself. And again, consciousness is a natural function of the mind. It's that capacity to know our experiences at the sixth sense doors. So eye consciousness, ear consciousness, tongue consciousness, and so on. So we can know sights and sounds, smells, tastes, physical sensations, all forms of mental activity. When we cling to this, it's when we identify with the mind, often with our intellects, and believe that we are our intelligence or our intellectual functioning. And this is often sort of one of the last holdouts of this clinging. We might come to terms of, yeah, I'm not my body, I see my body's not fully under my control, I'm not my preferences. I'm not my views and opinions, but there can still be a sense of, but I am my mind, the one that knows all of this. And that might be one reason why dementia is so terrifying to us, because we desperately want to be able to trust our own minds. And again, it's dukkha when we realize that even our minds are not always reliable. I had a simple experience of this during my first three-month retreat at IMS. I learned a lot on that retreat when I think back on it. I've shared this story with some of you before, but like here, you're instructed to give each other space and keep your eyes down, not make too much eye contact, definitely maintain noble silence. And... After the first day or so, I I noticed that there were a couple of women who looked quite physically similar and who dressed a little bit alike. And I decided that because they looked so similar that they were probably sisters. And I was quite happy at the idea of these two sisters being on retreat together. (laughs) (laughs) And so whenever I saw one or other of them coming into the hall, I felt happy and One of these women was sitting on a cushion in front of me and the other one would sit towards the back on a chair. But on the second night of the retreat, the one sitting behind me asked this question in the hall about the teachers that I heard as being quite disrespectful, even aggressive. And I thought, wow, she's got a bit of an issue there. I think I'll steer clear of her. And then the next day at breakfast, I was standing in the line for food and her sister was standing in front of me and she was just standing there with this really serene smile. And she was looking at the food and looking at all the people helping themselves. And I could just feel this meta coming from her. And I thought, wow, she's really different from her sister. I should (laughs) check her out at the end of the retreat and get to know her a bit better and I wonder how those two women could be so different from the same family. (laughs) 
And then a couple of days later, I saw the angry sister coming in. And she walked right past her seat and went to sit in her sister's place at the back. And then I realized they weren't sisters. It was the same person. (laughs) And one had been, she'd just been moving from the front of the hall to the back of the hall. And I had created this entire (laughs) two identities that I totally believed to be true. (laughs) Yeah. And on one level it was humorous, but at the time it was also a bit disturbing because I was thinking, how often am I doing that in the rest of my life and never even discovering it? And I also felt how much, you know, I wanted to believe that I was a good judge of character and that I was seeing things clearly and, you know, knew what was going on and that my mind was reliable, that I could trust it. And all of that got burst in that scenario. So I hope that's enough of an overview of these five aggregates and these five arenas that we tend to cling to. And again, to emphasize that as we start to release that clinging, we need to do it with kindness. We can't force ourselves to just let go. So seeing clinging and seeing that clinging with kindness is really the first step because until we see it, we can't do anything about it. And over time, as we do get more skilled at recognizing the different ways that we identify with experience and take it personally, we start to recognize the suffering in that. So a few days ago, I gave Shinzen Young's formula for suffering. S equals P times R. Mm -hmm. Suffering equals pain multiplied by resistance. In relation to clinging, there's a, a variation on that that I've come up with, and it's S equals P times I, I for identification. So suffering is pain multiplied by identification. So identification and resistance are kind of different ways of magnifying the inevitable pain and turning it into outright suffering. When we can let go of doing that, as I said the other night, there's literally more room in the heart and the mind for skillful qualities like the Brahmaviharas to start to develop more fully. So remembering that quote from Shabkar that I gave the other night about the mind's nature being vivid as a flawless piece of crystal, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, and ceaselessly responsive. This phrase, ceaselessly responsive, suggests the compassionate nature of the liberated mind. So again, we might see how these two wings to awakening of wisdom and compassion come together in perfect balance when the clinging is released. So this letting go on deeper and deeper levels is the whole 
unfolding of the path. So I'd like to uh, close with a quote from Ajahn Chah that you probably know, but I think it's worth repeating. He says, you will reach a point where the heart tells itself what to do. Try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become still in any surroundings, like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful rare animals will come to drink at the pool, and you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see the nature, you will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. Do everything with a mind that lets go. If you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you will have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you will have complete peace and freedom. So may we all experience this letting go completely and know complete peace and freedom. Thank you for your attention. Let's sit quietly for a few minutes. <clears throat> 